from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Over the past decade, climate scientists have done extensive research on the warming of the world's oceans. And that's obviously important work because oceans make up such a big part of the surface of our planet and have such a huge impact on the atmospheric climates that drive our lives. But there's another part of the global hydrological system that we don't know nearly so much about when it comes to warming. And that's the freshwater part of the equation. And at first, this might make some sense because only about 2.5% of all of the water on the Earth is freshwater. And then only about 1% of that is surface water. But then again, that's the stuff we need to live, which is why more than 50% of the world's human population lives within two miles of a surface freshwater body, some lakes, but mostly rivers. Using decades of survey data from rivers and streams across the United States, a team of researchers went looking for instances in which water temperatures rose above their typical range for five or more days. And when they did, something jumped out at them. There has been an explosion in recent years in these riverine heat waves. Spencer Tassone is a researcher at Michigan Technological University, where he studies long-term changes in streams and lakes, and he was the first author of a recent paper on the increasing heat wave frequency in streams and rivers in the United States. Spencer, welcome. Hey, thank you for having me. Spencer, rivers play this really essential role in American history and identity. Indigenous communities were most likely to be found near rivers. The first colonial settlement was in Jamestown, which is on the James River. Sam Clements set many of his stories on the Mississippi River. His pen name, Mark Twain, is a reference to river boats. So rivers are this really important thing to us culturally, but I also have the sense that we sort of take our rivers for granted. Yeah, I think that's a fair statement to say. Um, you know, rivers have been for the longest time where you would, you know, discharge your waste. Um, you know, we were doing that for decades and we're still doing that to this day. So rivers, you know, we've been kind of polluting them for, for decades, if not centuries. And it can't be really surprised to find bad things happening there. Do you think we did that because there was just this assumption that, like, literally, rivers carry things away, right? They carry them into the ocean, and the ocean is a bunch of salt water, and we're not going to drink the salt water anyway. So, like, do, do you think we did that just because of this idea that, like, it'll it'll go away from us? We, we won't have to deal with it. Yeah, I'm sure that's that's part of the reason why it's a part of it's just being convenient, you know, a lot of, like you were mentioning earlier, a lot of civilizations developed along rivers. And if you need to get rid of your, your waste, you know, it's, it seems like a reasonable way to do it, you know, but we have billions of people on the planet now and that has consequences. A lot of my childhood memories are tied to rivers and streams. You know, we used to go creek walking in the mountains and we go crawdad hunting at a stream in the park near our home. T- tell me about your early experiences with rivers. Yeah, uh, so I grew up in Virginia Beach, Virginia, um, along the coast of uh, Virginia. And 
most of my time was spent, you know, at, at the oceanfront. It wasn't until I, you know, started working on my, my undergraduate degree at Virginia Commonwealth University, which is in Richmond, Virginia, that I started really spending time along rivers. In Richmond, we have the James River. And it was there that I, that I got turned on to, to just how many people use these rivers, not only for, you know, recreation, but for fresh water, but, you know, for, for, for drinking water, for commerce. That was my introduction to, to rivers and to the heritage that people have uh, associated with rivers. When did you realize that rivers were this really vastly understudied thing when it comes to climate change? Well, specifically for this study, um, you know, I was aware, my, my background is, my, my research background comes from studying estuaries. And within estuaries, you know, those are bound by the ocean on one side and rivers on the other. And that, so I was sort of had my feet in these two worlds where I was learning about oceanography, but also learning more about freshwater science. Um, and I knew that these heat waves were increasing in the ocean. And I knew on the freshwater side that rivers were increasing in temperature. But it came clear to me that nobody had looked at the increasing temperatures in rivers through this sort of heat wave lens. And, and explain the heat wave lens, right? Because we think, okay, like everything is warming up. Generally, everything is warming up. We kind of get that. But it doesn't all do so perfectly evenly. It, it, it comes in ebbs and flows. And so what we're talking about in these heat waves are the ebbs of heat that happen in the rivers that you studied. How do you define those ebbs? People tend to think about, you know, long-term warming, which happens over years, decades, um, as the sort of gradual thing that happens. However, punctuated along that, you know, gradual increase in temperature are these extreme events where we have these short-term high temperature events. And the way that I define these heat waves is similar to how they define them in the ocean. It's a period of time when temperature exceeds some threshold for a certain duration of time. That certain duration of time is for five days, and that certain threshold is something that's referred to as a 90th percentile threshold. And because we're using these percentile thresholds, we tend to work with these data sets that are, that are very extensive in length, so typically on the order of 20 to 30 years. And the other thing that's kind of cool about that is, you know, most people think about heat waves occurring only in the summertime, but heat waves using our definition can occur at any time of the year. They're not just limited to the warmest times of the year. So you're seeing these instances in which temperatures in these rivers rise above the what is typical for these 20 and 30 year periods in June, July, and August, but you're also seeing, like, when maybe the river is, you know, at, at its warmest during those times of years, presumably, in the North year. And then also, like, in December, January, and February, when the river is at its coldest, but it's warmer than it typically is in its cold, colder states, right? Exactly right, yeah. And something that was kind of interesting that came out of my work was that you know, we saw these trends in riverine heat waves increasing, particularly in summer and fall. However, the most intense 
heat waves tended to occur during the winter between December and, and around April. And wh- why do you think that is? I think, it, I think it points to an increase in wintertime temperatures. We're seeing wintertime temperatures uh, that are warmer than they have been in the past. And the result of that is, you know, in, in places where rivers are filled by snowmelt, that means less melting. In places where they're filled with rain, that means the rain itself is warmer. And then, of course, there's just the atmospheric water connection, right? Like if the air above the river is warmer, the river surface is going to be warmer too. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, we believe that there's, you know, this this work that we've done looking at heat waves and rivers is the first to, to look at heat waves and rivers. There's a lot of interesting work uh, to be done connecting uh, the, what we do in the landscape and how that affects riverine temperature. We know that, you know, the actions that we have in our day-to-day lives have impacts on water temperature. But connecting those impacts to heat waves is something that has yet to be done and is something that I'm pretty interested in doing. Well, and you mentioned earlier, you know, we pollute our rivers. We've been doing that for centuries. Is that part of it? I mean, there are more chemicals in the river. Does that play a role in water temperature? Not necessarily the chemicals, although I can talk more about that. What I was referring to was more of, you know, going and removing trees along the banks of rivers. We know that if there isn't, if we reduce that that canopy cover along the edges of rivers, that that increases river temperature. In the past, we've implemented actions that have basically drained out wetlands. Wetlands do a really good job of putting water into the ground, and that has a cooling effect. We also have put, you know, impervious surface all, all over the, the landscape, and impervious surfaces can superheat water that lands on it through things like precipitation. When you say impervious surfaces, you mean like concrete? Yes. Sorry. Yes. I mean concrete. I'm, I'm thinking of those things that water can't really penetrate into and make its way into the ground. To do this work, you refer to these data sets, these 20, 30 year data sets. These are water monitoring stations set up all across the United States that have been there for a very long time, keeping daily temperatures. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. This data came from the United States Geological Survey. They have a, a national water information system that is uh, that is responsible for collecting different water quality information. Some of that includes water temperature. And some of these sites have been monitored for 20, 30, or 40 years or longer. But, you know, there, there's many sites across the U.S., and not all of them have been recording for that long. So you you have this data set that is from a bunch of long-term monitoring stations. Do you feel like you have enough data to make some assumptions about rivers in general? Is, is your N big enough, in other words? The data sets that we have, um, they are somewhat limited. We have these sites all across the U.S., but there are several regions in several states where we didn't have any data um, that was either long enough or was full enough. Basically, we need a, we need 
uh, daily average temperatures for at least this instance, 26 years. And we had data from something like 35 states, but there's still several states where we didn't have data. So basically we need to continue monitoring in order to have a better understanding of how uh, heat waves and water temperature in general are changing through time. And we need these, we really need these long-term monitoring data sets in order to, to make those assessments. Why, why did you decide to look at heat waves as opposed to, you know, the, the monthly average or the seasonal average or annual average of these rivers? Because this part is, is important for the way that you're thinking about how temperature interacts with the ecology of the rivers. Yeah, exactly. There's been a lot of work done looking at riverine water temperatures throughout the U.S., but also in other parts of the world. And they've all come to this conclusion that river temperatures are increasing, but they're not telling you, that's that's just only telling you one part of the story. They're telling you that there's a long-term trend that is that is increasing through time. However, heat waves, these, these events, these high temperature events um, can have a disproportionate long-term impact on these ecosystems that isn't captured by these long-term trends that people have traditionally looked at water temperature with. And so like an example of this, going back to what I was talking about, like when I was a kid going crawdad hunting in a river, right? Like maybe a crawdad can survive to X degrees. And if we look at the long-term temperature of, or the long-term summertime temperatures of a, of a river and we go, oh, like the long-term summertime average has increased a little bit, but it's still X minus one, then no problem, right? The crawdad is fine, except for what you're saying is that there are these increasing spikes in temperature, in which case we might be X plus one or X plus five or X plus seven. And that's when we start really getting to the moments in which the life that exists in these rivers could be impacted by these temperature rises. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there's, you know, organisms that live in these rivers and they all have this thermal tolerance that they that they live in. Um, if we start to exceed that, we can start to stress these organisms out. And if we exceed that for a long enough time, we can really start to threaten the persistence of organisms. And that can have a lasting impact. So these, these short-term heat wave events can potentially have these disproportionately long-term impacts relative to their short-term existence. The data you looked at came from 70 sites over the past 27-ish years. Um, It showed this pretty steep uptick in the number of heat wave occurrences. Were there any of these sites where it was just more pronounced than other places where it was just shockingly pronounced the number of heat waves? Uh, yeah. So there was the, the, the single site with the greatest increase in heat wave frequency was on the Rogue River in Oregon. But sites in the southeast region of the U.S., I uh, think South Carolina, Georgia, Alabama, they tended to have the greatest increase in heat wave frequency among uh, all the regions of the U.S., And this is likely due to the Southeast region having the largest increases in air temperature and riverine water temperature. 
tell me what's your hypothesis on the rogue river i used to salmon fish on the rogue what's going on there that's making it so pronounced yeah it's hard it's hard to say um we didn't really get site specific information to sort of tease out what was driving these heat waves in these different regions but what we did find was that heat waves tended to to occur um, or tended to occur more frequently at sites that have uh, low discharge and at um, sites that are either above a reservoir or when no reservoir is present. Um, actually, that, that actually gets us into an important part of this, which is dams play a really big role in river water temperatures. Talk about that. Yes, exactly. Uh, so reservoirs, what they do is, you know, above a reservoir, you're slowing water down. Um, you're increasing the amount of surface area that uh, the water has in contact with sunlight, basically with the atmosphere. And so that can, that slowing of the water and putting more, uh, allowing that water to have more time and more sunlight increases water temperatures. Um, similarly, at sites below a reservoir, um, you have to think of where the reservoir releases water from. Most of these reservoirs release water from the bottom of the reservoir. And not to get too into the weeds, but temperature uh, stratifies within these reservoirs. So the warmer water is typically on top, and you have cooler water on the bottom. And so when these reservoirs release water, they tend to release um cool water downstream in the summertime and then in the wintertime that 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 thermal difference between the top and bottom disappears and so you tend to release warmer water uh, in the wintertime this has the effect of stabilizing water temperatures downstreams of downstream of rivers uh, excuse me downstream of reservoirs and so that's why we think that um these reservoirs, uh, they can increase heat waves, they can increase water temperature above them, but sites below them tend to have less variability in water temperature. So part of this is a question that, you know, is about climate warming. And then part of this is a question about uh, human manipulation of ecosystems. Yes, exactly. So, you know, we see long-term changes, long-term increases in atmospheric temperature, but the actions that we have within the watersheds that we live can also impact water temperature. What's the next big question that you're hoping to answer based on this initial uh, analysis? So rivers have this really important part in the carbon cycle of the globe. Uh, rivers tend to, to, to off-gas CO2, which we know is a greenhouse gas. And we know that the production of CO2 um, within rivers is temperature dependent. And so I'm really interested in this question of, you know, during these heat waves, do we get these increasing pulses of uh, off-gassing of CO2 and other greenhouse gases? So it's sort of this positive feedback loop where the climate is increasing air temperature, air temperature is helping to increase water temperature, which is also related to heat waves. And it's this positive feedback loop potentially, potentially, where these heat waves also release more greenhouse gas 
which increases the atmosphere more, increases river temperature more, increases heat waves more. It's this sort of positive feedback loop. You, you, you hear what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, and, and in climate science, of course, we should say, like, when we say positive feedback loop, right, that doesn't mean it's good. Positive is bad. <laughs> Right. Yes. Sorry. Yes. Um, for the, no, for not, the, not at all. But I, I, was, <laughs> I always find that to be an unfortunate sort of way that we talk about feed, these feedback loops, because the, the real scary thing about a feedback loop is that it can get out of control. Absolutely. Yeah. If it goes unchecked, it can, it can, it can be disastrous. So what, I mean, like, what interventions are possible right now? Or are we just way too early in the analysis of this to even be thinking about this in terms of rivers? I mean, you, you did say earlier, you know, we cut down trees around rivers, the rivers are going to warm up. That makes sense. So trees? Well, trees are definitely going to be part of, of the answer. We've known that river temperatures have been increasing for a long time. And so... The best way, not maybe not the best way, but one way to manage those those temperatures is to really develop and support policies that protect, maintain, and increase natural lands that provide cooling benefits. Things like forests, wetlands, um, as well as um, you know reducing flow alterations in streams. We know that if we slow water down or if we take water out that those have positive impacts on 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 heat waves and again positive here is not a good thing that's that's what i mean is more you get more heat waves you work a lot with data that's a sort of an indoor job um you don't necessarily need to be on the river in order to do a lot of the research you do um, but you mentioned you're you're right there on the James River. It's a beautiful, slow-moving river that you know meanders from the Appalachian Mountains down to the Atlantic Ocean. Um, do you ever just take your laptop down there and work the data there? Because I feel like it's just such a pristine setting. Yeah, so I, I used to do a lot more work on the James River. Um, when I was an undergrad, I did some research there uh, on harmful algal blooms. And when I, uh, I, I wound up staying in the Richmond area at VCU to study um, the James River as part of my master's thesis. So I've, I've gotten to spend many, many uh, hours and days now uh, on the river, on the James, um, really getting into really appreciating what's what the James has to offer. And you are now a newly hired researcher at Michigan Technological University. What what are you going to be particularly focused on uh, in your new appointment? Yeah, so I recently uh, defended my dissertation at the University of Virginia and have started a postdoctoral uh, fellowship uh, in the Department of Biological Sciences at Michigan Technological University. And what I'm going to be doing there is studying long-term changes in these relatively pristine areas of, uh, of Michigan. Um, there's a national park up there called Isle Royale National Park, where there's been uh, very limited human development. And they've also been collecting data there for decades 
And so I'm going to be working up uh, data from Isle Royale, um, as well as um, there's a tribal group in that region, a tribal group of Chippewa that has been collecting data for a while. And I'll be helping them to, to analyze the data that they've collected. My heart kind of breaks here because I know how this comes out, right? Even in these places that are relatively pristine, like you say, you're going to find that, you know, nothing escapes the power of anthropogenic climate change, aren't you? Yeah, yeah. There's There's been some work done up there um, looking at the impacts of acid rain. Um, and so, you know, these relatively pristine areas, while there's been little, you know, human development there, they are impacted by um, other regions, um, which is, you know, how we get acid rain. That's Spencer Tassone. He's a researcher at Michigan Technological University, where he studies long-term changes in streams and lakes. And he was the first author of a recent paper on the increasing heat wave frequency in streams and rivers in the United States. Spencer Tassone, thank you. Yeah, thanks again for having me. I'm always happy to talk heat waves. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us on UPR every Thursday morning at 1030 and on KCPW at 10 on Thursday at noon on Sunday. If you miss us, then you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our program is supported by public radio listeners like you. Our producer is Claire Scott. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas. <laughs>